Welcome to the ULI Ottawa podcast, connecting industry professionals and leaders in an active discussion about real estate and land use across the nation's capital. Here we are, episode two of the ULI Ottawa podcast, coming to you straight from IQ offices at 222 Queen Street on the 10th floor. Thank you for the space, guys. If you haven't seen the space, do yourself a favor and come check it out. I'm here today with my co-host, Kevin McMahon. Today we'll be covering the industrial market with our good friend, James Beach. He is the Vice President of Real Estate for Broccolini. They've done a variety of very cool projects uh, all across Eastern Canada, probably across Canada. He'll enlighten me on that later. But James, uh, over to you. Why don't you tell us a bit about who you are, uh, how you got here, and uh, once again, thanks for showing up. Well, thank you for having me here, both gentlemen. Um, hopefully we don't get cancelled due to my content. I can't promise anything, though. <laughs> uh, so, James, maybe to start, uh, if you could just give us a little bit of background on how you got started in the industry. Obviously, one of the things that both Brandon and I love about ULI is the ability to meet people in the industry. Uh, we've known each other for quite some time. Uh, we had the good fortune of working together on some projects in the past, and so uh, one of the things we encourage listeners to do is get involved in the space and, and understand what it's like to, to be in the real estate realm. And, and so if you could enlighten us into how you got started in the industry and, and what your role is today, that would be helpful for everybody. Yeah, pleasure. I, I guess working backwards, um, I received a, a very forceful note from Kevin, uh, not suggesting I attend, but uh, saying it was mandatory, but he did promise cocktails. Um, I'm looking at paper cups filled with uh, soda water now, so... It was voluntold. Uh, voluntold. James, that's what we're calling it. Um, no, it's great, great to be here. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, so a little bit about me. Yes, James Beach, uh, Vice President of Broccolini Real Estate. Um, we are a, a 72-year-old company uh, that started in Montreal back in 1949 as a general contractor building small-scale residential. Uh, in the 80s, started building medium-sized industrial uh, car dealerships, uh, small warehouses under 100,000 square feet. And then in uh, the 2000s, uh, diversified into real estate development, acquiring land uh, mostly in Montreal, uh, with the philosophy that if we control the land, we would then be able to guarantee uh, ourselves the, uh, the contracting work to build up the facility. And that really scaled up significantly through the 2000s and to where we are today. The uh, company has around 450 people. We have offices in Toronto, Montreal, and Ottawa. And our general uh, average, I guess, over the last couple of years in terms of construction volume, we're, we're close to a billion dollars now in construction volume. Um, we build about 85% of the projects for ourselves. So we have limited partnership funds that are all private funds, and uh, we, we control uh, about 85% of the projects that we build. So I'm fortunate, fortunate to be able to uh, participate in, in some of those fun projects. So James, Broccoli made a pretty big move in the Ottawa industrial market, but you guys have been involved in the market for a long time. Uh, I know you guys have, have recently completed a building, bringing the total in the last few years up to north of, of 4 million square feet, uh, which is incredible when you think the market itself is, is roughly 32, 33 million square feet. Uh, to build that in a short amount of time is, is pretty incredible. Uh, across Canada, I know you guys are, are really active in the market today, but can you just give us a bit of background of how much industrial space you guys have built uh, across the nation? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. That metric is ever-changing and you know, under construction, delivered, 
uh, two different metrics. We have a, a couple of major projects on the go. We're, we're probably uh, about six million square feet right now under construction in uh, Ontario and Quebec. Uh, delivered, we're, we're a little over 20 million square feet. Um, some large, large-scale projects, uh, a lot of spec projects, uh, some mid-sized, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand square foot projects delivered. So, definitely represents um, a good chunk of our business, uh, both historically and currently. That's that's incredible. And maybe for the listeners, we should put some uh, context around what exactly industrial is, because there's there's a vision of what industrial is, and there's a reality of what's what's actively being built, specifically in in Ottawa. Uh, as it relates to more of the, the logistics uh, kind of light industrial. So what kind of products are you guys building across the nation right now? Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, the, the term industrial, even for myself as a, you know, a m- member of the real estate community, I still don't perceive industrial as a, a clean, modern space. I really think of, are we talking about a, a dirty soot factory, uh, you know, poor conditions and poor construction. I mean, that is, I think industrial is just a, it's an older term that we'll likely see uh, uh, refined, uh, both from a, from an industry perspective, but also from a, even a zoning perspective, we're likely going to see some added language. Um, so for us, we like to focus on the light industrial and in that subsector of industrial uh, fulfillment, distribution, warehousing, trucking, logistics, so those are the type of uh, projects we like to focus on, all related to e-commerce, uh, the movement of products from, uh, from manufacturing to the final end user. And I know you, you guys have a range of projects that you're actively working on, some of which maybe aren't for public consumption at this point, but what are the types of tenants that you're seeing in that space right now? Yeah, very much uh, you know, in the last two years, for sure, post-pandemic, uh, post, uh, uh, the big push right now is for uh, online retailers to um, they're really aggressively looking for real estate and looking for real estate to allow expansion of fulfillment. Obviously, um, there's a significant uptake on online consumer spending and shopping as a result. And really, these are tenants that are looking to expand their footprint, whether they're a, a 3PL, a third-party logistics provider, whether they're a fulfillment provider, distribution, uh, really all, all of those different components of the supply chain are in you know, desperate and immediate need of uh, real estate expansion. Yeah, and James, you touched on, you know, you specialize in light industrial for logistics, logistics companies. Um, it's kind of funny how, like, over the last five years, especially post-pandemic, industrial real estate has turned into that prized asset class. So for our listeners who are still thinking of the soot-filled factories, can you give us an idea on construction costs, rent, specs for the buildings that you're building now, and, and just kind of enlighten us as to... You know, it's not just a crummy old industrial building or four walls, 22 foot clear, we throw them up and you start filling it with stuff. There's a lot of specs that go into building what you build and subsequently leasing it back to these e-commerce giants. And Brandon, I think uh, maybe a way to illustrate that is, uh, I don't know how much you can reveal about the inner workings of, of a company like Amazon, but how does the package make it uh, from the manufacturer to the facility to your door in sometimes less than a day? Uh, it seems incredible to me that that's somehow, uh, frankly, profitable for somebody to ship a $10 item uh, across the world sometimes and deliver in a couple days' time. So uh, I know a lot of technology is involved in that. So when you're looking at a lot of these companies, they're kind of a blend of, of you know, logistics and technology that, that go hand in hand. And, and some of these companies are maybe more of a tech play than a real estate uh, manufacturing facility, uh, as you might look at a lot of the historical definitions of industrial real estate. Yeah, so t- two great questions. I'll try to tie them together. One talking about uh, 
and what these buildings look like today, how that's changed, and uh, to answer your question, Kevin, just about uh, supply chain, perhaps the different steps uh, as we move along downstream from manufacturing to, uh, to ultimate uh, end user. Um, so I would have to say that from an industrial perspective, the building types have changed significantly. Uh, it's, it, we're no longer seeing, to your point, 20 foot clear, uh, you know, tilt up panels, uh, dirt floors and low lighting without air conditioning to store product. Uh, the facilities that are being built today are extremely high end, pro high end product, um, you know, technologically advanced, uh, green standards. I mean, these are buildings that are built to you know, last 20 20 years for one tenant and with an ability to, to turn and, and renew a, with a new tenancy to run another 50 plus years. So these are you know, highly durable, uh, highly sophisticated, highly modern facilities, nothing like we've seen in the past. Uh, mechanical systems. A bit different than maybe the warehouses you guys built in Montreal back in the 50s and 60s? Slightly different, yes. Uh, the dirt floors have been removed and now uh, you know, lab quality finished uh, polished concrete floors etc but no just the the, the overall the, the buildings now are, are are exceptional and you know to answer answer your original question I mean these are trophy assets the industrial sector uh, 20 years ago um, you know maybe it was not as hot as it is today uh, that's a, obviously a result in the asset class um, seeing an improvement in overall quality obviously uh, an improvement in the rent profiles and a huge improvement in the overall tenant covenants Right. So obviously you guys are getting more rent for the buildings you're building. Um, can you give us an idea of what it would cost to build a facility suitable for one of these online e-commerce retailers? Absolutely. Um, much more than it did, uh, say, say, five years ago. <laughs> um, no, not to, be, not to be coy, but um, but I will continue to be coy through this entire uh, podcast. We expect that from you expect guys. that. Yes, absolutely. So um, you know, the question specific to Amazon, Kev. Um, fully cognizant of my extremely binding non-disclosure agreement, which I respect to the nth degree. Um, I will not be disclosing any type of details of that said tenant. But in a general sense, uh, logistics, e-commerce, uh, we could talk about supply chain. Really, you would see the first point being uh, manufacturing, and that product would be then moved into a larger distribution network. And this is really a, a large building that has um, the, the sole purpose of storing until the product is actually needed, until it's uh, perhaps uh, needed um, with a future, uh, future need identified or an actual need in terms of uh, consumer purchase. Um, a lot of these e-commerce groups will then move that product downstream into what's called a fulfillment center. And that would be the next step uh, after a distribution network into a fulfillment center. Fulfillment centers are usually more localized. Uh, that would capture you know, probably a five or 600 kilometer radius. In the United States, for instance, every city is a couple hundred kilometers away or miles, we'll use that metric. But um, fulfillment center would capture a larger area and product would be sitting there anticipating a purchase. And so these e-commerce groups will stock those fulfillment centers with product they assume, maybe seasonal product or high selling product, and they'll project out the actual uh, sales profile. Downstream from that sortation, so once a project, uh, a project once a uh, parcel is purchased or a product is purchased, that product would move from a fulfillment center into a sortation center. Sortation is even more localized. That would usually be um, uh, city specific. A sortation center's sole purpose is to move the product from fulfillment into a zip code, an area code, a, a delivery code. It would then be moved into a last mile destination a delivery station. 
and that's your UPS, your FedEx, your Canada Post. Um, in some cases, uh, Amazon specifically is, is also taking up that last mile delivery uh, uh, footprint in the market. And so really that's the chain from uh, distribution uh, from manufacturing to last mile and then it arrives at your doorstep and hopefully a porch pirate doesn't take it off uh, the step before you're able to grab it. <laughs> It's, it's pretty incredible the amount of trust that is, is put into that supply chain now where you've got parcel, well obviously right now everybody is spending an inordinate amount of time at home so those packages aren't left out there typically all day. Uh, but obviously that was, a, that was a decision made by the industry as a whole to take that risk that uh, they're going to be able to deliver a better product overall at a more profitable uh, return even though there's inevitably going to be situations where products don't get delivered and they have to make that up to the end user. Spillage. Right, it's like credit card uh, policies that cover damage, extended warranties that nobody really knows about because they don't advertise it but most most credit cards have some some kind of protection to the consumer which is, is you know unheard of almost uh, when you think of it from, from a practical perspective but is very much kind of a you know just part of that overall service to the user that they're trying to promote uh, to keep you as a loyal customer. Yeah so to answer your question about the $10 product how can it be profitable how does it arrive 24 hours after purchase it's because of that very structured supply chain um, and groups like Amazon as an example uh, from point A to point Z have each piece fully refined. They control each aspect and as a result they have efficiencies, they can still maintain profitability and they can control the overall uh, consumer experience from you know, right click I need that widget to the widgets at my front door and do it in a, in a 24 hour period. And I got to assume there's some incredible technology that helps that last mile delivery or I have the most um, uh, productive delivery person in the history of the world that works in our community that delivers all across Ottawa but I see him on a regular like every day we see the same person delivering packages to our neighbors and it's it's a pretty incredible network that they've been able to put together presumably it's very organized when that delivery person shows up to fill their van uh, full of parcels it's a pretty seamless process otherwise you know it wouldn't work and so I guess that's that's part of how you know, it costs you a dollar to send a, a piece of paper uh, down the street, but it it's free to get something that weighs 10 pounds that costs $10 delivered to your house is, is remarkable to me and, and maybe speaks to some of the, the disruption that should happen um, or continue to happen in that space as it comes to other, other segments of, of maybe, um, you know, the, the federal, uh, you know, postal service and that sort of thing. So it's exciting to see where that's going to go. And I know there's... There's very specific kind of uh, guidelines to where these facilities go. And I'm not sure when you guys started building your first project on, on Boundary Road, if you thought, hey, maybe in a couple of years we'd be building an even bigger facility on the other side of Ottawa, before, or if it was just, you know, we're happy to have this one and we don't expect that they're ever going to take more of a, a footprint. But I guess it all boils down to how much product you can store in strategic locations to get that, uh, that supply chain uh, managed through the entire uh, cycle. Yeah, and that ties in nicely to my question. It seems to me like the evolution of all this logistics, Amazon, whoever else, e-commerce retailer, having these facilities. Like at what point did Broccolini identify this space as like, we can make some serious money at this and we need to focus in on it? Because to me, it feels like five, six years ago, we weren't talking about industrial real estate this way. And you guys have really created a niche for yourself. Maybe it's not even a niche, but you guys have really carved out a really solid business as the guys who build these centers. So how quickly did that occur? 
you know, it's been it's, it's been 20 years in the making, and uh, recently we've been doing obviously a, a lot of work with one specific Seattle-based uh, technology company. Uh, ironically, that's the, that's how they define themselves. They're they're not in the parcel business. They're a technology company, um, but we've been Broccolini. We've been developing this type of space for 20 years. And we had, um, you know, it started with uh, groups like um, Best Buy. Broccolini probably built 30 Best Buy locations. And you know, the, the, the thought of going to a giant warehouse to buy electronics and be able to touch them and, and, and use them and, and, and talk to an expert, you know, that was a relatively new concept in the, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, we, we were part of that expansion. Um, Canadian Tire, likewise, so the idea of being able to walk into a 200,000 square foot uh, uh, you know, glorify showroom and be able to buy every single type of widget uh, at your disposal, screwdrivers, soap, uh, a new lawnmower all under the same roof. I mean, that really is the, it was the everything store before uh, e-commerce existed. Uh, we, we built uh, hundreds of those little projects, uh, some large scale, some distribution centers, a million and a half square foot distribution centers for the likes of Ikea, for Canadian Tire, uh, the Target expansion uh, a few years ago that went south, literally, uh, we were behind that driving force as well. So, I mean, the company Broccolini is a company, uh, and we've been working on that for 20 years. This is just the next step. This is just the next step in the evolution of, of retail, ultimately, uh, of online retail. Um, so we've been in that space for a while. So you've evolved with the space, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what will be tomorrow? Uh, will it be uh, drone pads and, and uh, air hubs? Probably. What we're building today is as technologically advanced and as impressive as in terms of scale, in terms of how these facilities operate, 20 years from now will be archaic. And um, 40 years from now will be, again, even equally archaic. Are there repurposed plans for the buildings you're building like that are b- baked into the pro forma? Or do you guys... You know, we're building these right now because it's what the demand is right now in 2021. Or is there some future sort of foreshadowing of like, well, how can this building be used in 2030? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And, and future proofing, we through every design evolution process for all of our projects, we, we always have a list of future proofing ideas and um, no one can predict the future. And if you look at Amazon specifically 20 years ago, the space was a garage, um, you know, a two car garage in, in, in Seattle. That was the extent of the footprint. Today, it's significantly larger. Uh, so 20 years from now, will it look like it is today? No, it won't. So what we do is we, 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 you know, we, we ensure the buildings have the ability to be flexible, but you can never predict what that user will need. So we, we have the ability to uh, you know, remove floors. We have uh, roofs that have an ability to take future solar panel loading that currently is not efficient enough to, to warrant or justify implementation, uh, ability to take panels out of buildings, uh, secondary accesses that are all the underground is, is buried. Uh, um, uh, you know, we're now future-proofing buildings for electrification. Even our industrial buildings will have all the conduit run through uh, the uh, truck parking lots to have four or 500 charging stations. The conduits run, hardware is not there, but we're, we foresee in the next couple of years that it will become efficient. So yeah, I mean, we're always, uh, always trying to ensure that our assets, uh, as mentioned, we own most of these buildings. We want to ensure that down the road, uh, they're still uh, trophy assets and they haven't become redundant, but you know, no one can predict the future. Well, I think it's actually interesting, and I, I can appreciate how you have restrictions on what you can and, and cannot speak uh, about related to the specific 
uh, tenant that uh, uh, has a smiley face in their logo. Um, I mean, it's no secret that you guys built their facility, obviously, and are proud that uh, you had that uh, that partnership. And I think to, to Brennan's point of, of how you guys are leading the, the charge in that, I think it speaks to, uh, I'm going to get a little bit, um, uh, I guess, marketing, uh, but you guys have a, a slogan that you make it happen as a company. And I think if you can deliver under really stressful environments, when you think back to that project of what the parameters were to make it happen, if you deliver on that and somebody can rely on you to do it again, it becomes a, a, a relationship that it just, you know, it, it's going to be bound uh, continuously until, um, until it's not. And so uh, I'm, you know, happy to see you guys uh, succeed with those projects and build on that relationship uh, throughout Ottawa and, and, you know, potentially nationally. Uh, that's, that's pretty exciting for a company to, to grow that much with, um, with that kind of uh, knowledge and, and experience in that field. I, I think the, there is, uh, there's some videos online that show some of the precision that goes into these, uh, uh, these buildings with the robots and how perfect the floor has to be. And that's, you know, when you're trying to deliver a building in a very short period of time, that is not an easy thing to accomplish, especially when you consider the sizes. How many football fields would the one on Boundary Road be? Like M many, R right? Not a football guy. Uh, don't use any. Actually, don't use any organized sport as a as a as a metric. I'm trying to think of a metric to use now, but it's it, it's, it's about it's big, right? Kevin? It's a thirty it's second big. drive going hundred kilometers an hour from one end of the building to the other, roughly. Uh, going the speed the speed limit is now one hundred and ten, I think, on that section. So <laughs> maybe it's a little less than that now, but. Uh, it's it's an incredible building to see and to know that that floor has to be precise uh, across the entirety of the site is is incredible to accomplish that. Yeah, and I think that speaks to back to the origins of Broccolini. You get, back in the day, they were very skilled GCs. They were very good at building buildings. They were just they were tradespeople, right? Like they had the the assets, they had the resources, and they delivered really good buildings. Which ties into my next question. So we've talked about Broccolini's origins. Now you're a landlord as well. So a GC turned landlord to some of the largest, most profitable technology companies in the world. What, what goes along with that? How do you build up a war chest of resources internally to ensure that nothing ever goes wrong? And I guess what have you learned as a result of that? No, no. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. And I think the key to our, our success, not just with you know, industrial, but we were, we were high rise residential office, it very much is our, that our, at our core, we are general contractors, we're engineers, we're builders, we're, we're people that understand the nuances of construction, the timelines, the volatility, you know, all, 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 the, all the risk that goes into development as a result of our intimate knowledge on the construction execution side, it gives us an edge for sure. And um, you know, with, with these, these projects, we're able to offer a one-stop shop. Uh, our tenants, our clients are able to come to us and ask us for real estate advice to go buy land, uh, to finance the projects, to aid in the design development, all the entitlement, the execution on the construction side, and then we even we have a property managed division and we even manage the projects after delivery. So the, the A to Z, the full service, um, the full spectrum of services that the company is able to offer, I think that really gives us uh, a leg up. I'll definitely say that is our, that is our secret sauce, um, just being able to do everything A to, a to Z for sure. So. A to Z. I think there's a logo yeah, that has there is a, a, an there arrow is. that goes from A to Z. Um, I don't think it's trademarked though. I think I can use that. 
I, I, I think that's probably fair. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure Jeff uh, is listening to the podcast, but hopefully he is. Uh, uh, but I think, I think you touched on a couple of really good points there as it relates to the expertise that you, you develop. And when you look at, at things that are ever-changing in the market, be it steel prices or just construction costs or limitations with trades as a whole, there's not that many companies that have put together a, uh, a Gantt chart of building uh, a 1 million or 3 million square foot facility in a very short period of time. And it's hard for other companies to... to win over a tenant that you're making a promise to when you haven't done it before. And so the fact that you guys were able to, to build up from you know the car dealerships to this scale is, is a really remarkable story uh, and a, a great Canadian story as a whole, not just Montreal or Ottawa. It's been, uh, uh, it's pretty impressive and, and the transition isn't just, obviously this, this podcast is more focused on the industrial side, but you guys are uh, doing projects in in Montreal, Ottawa, and and Toronto, uh, maybe among other places on the residential side, and and that experience that you build up on the you know construction as a general contractor pays dividends to both your own internal resources that you're investing, but also any partners. You mentioned some funds that uh, that you guys have. It's it adds confidence to to that core group of people behind you that that you can do it and you can make it happen. Uh, so that's. That, that's trademark, Kevin. Is it? Okay, I'm going to get... Uh, uh, You'll get a lawyer's letter, season assist, uh, shortly. Perfect. <laughs> that's great. One thing you touched on, too, during the, uh, the long answer to my long question, uh, James, zoning. And we spoke about this earlier before we started hitting record. Um, zoning is obviously a big issue for you. And as the Urban Land Institute podcast, we talk about the responsible use of land all the time. Historically, as you probably know, it's developer versus city legislation or whatever, whoever I should say is, um, is in power and control of the zoning. Can you talk a bit about you know, how the zoning works right now, how you think it should work going forward, uh, where legislation, municipalities, cities need to meet in the middle with developers or how you can work more collaboratively and make it less of a battle? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll start by saying that the city of Ottawa, out of the municipalities and jurisdictions that we've worked with, um, you know, they're phenomenal. It's been a, it's been an incredible experience for us from you know, project number one to our current projects, just very open-minded, very, uh, very intelligent, very experienced individuals that I think uh, have been ultimately supportive of some of our great projects, uh, cognizant of uh, you know, the economic development benefits that come, but also just uh, you know, the, the overall uh, suitability of some of these projects. And um, so it's, been, it's been a great experience to date. Uh, zoning, though, is always a, a fun part of development. It's, it's you know, one of the largest risks. Uh, we, we consider it entitlement. So not just from a zoning perspective, any of the permits uh, that you would need to, to obtain, some of which uh, are open to public consent, some that uh, you know, take um, a number of years to obtain. Uh, zoning, specifically in Ottawa, all of these projects we're talking about fall under the light industrial designation. And light industrial, again, is a, is a vague term with many sub-sectors, warehousing, um, that is a defined, uh, defined term, trucking logistics, not defined under the, uh, under the current City of Ottawa bylaws, um, di uh, distribution centers, not defined, sortation centers, not defined, fulfillment centers, not defined. So we have many uses, real uses, that differ greatly from your traditional light industrial. Uh, that don't really find a home uh, under, the, under the zoning bylaw. They have to fall under the light industrial definition, which I guess is, is um, 
uh, vague enough, at the same time prescriptive enough that uh, these projects do find a home under the, under the uh, under those uh, zoning terms. So I think the city of Ottawa is moving forward. Obviously, the, the new the new OP that's uh, that's at the table. Um, that OP will speak most likely not to these new definitions, perhaps, but uh, location and the locations for these larger facilities uh, due to some of the trucking natures. Uh, associated with the, these uses, uh, you know, near interchanges, uh, near 400 series highways, proximity to those uh, those routes um, will likely be part of the discussion. Uh, so James, just can you give us some context of how the City of Ottawa has stacked up in, uh, in terms of incentives and, and the ability to kind of roll out the carpet uh, for some of these large RFPs, requests for proposals that you uh, that you've been taking part in over the last number of years, uh, most many of which you've been successful with, and, and perhaps some that you haven't because there hasn't been that ability to to deliver a product within a, a really constrained timeline, or maybe it's just the pricing doesn't make sense. Whether it's land value for service land that doesn't really exist a lot in Ottawa, or it could be just the development process might uh, might have some challenges to to meet those timelines. Uh, could you just go into maybe some detail there? Yeah, uh, absolutely, Kevin. Happy happy to speak specifically to to Ottawa and how it would say stack up against other municipalities vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis competitiveness of uh, responding to requests for proposals for industrial tenants or users. Um, historically, it's been great. We very much have found ourselves in Ottawa in, in a bit of a sweet spot in the sense that land pricing hasn't currently, I mean, it's creeping up pretty significantly at a very rapid rate, but it hasn't eclipsed a point where it's no longer viable from a, from a project perspective. Um, labor force is very strong in Ottawa. We're able to access uh, over a million people, and within that million person demographic exists, I think, a, a very strong depth of uh, labor pool for these, these specific buildings, some which need uh, employment uh, in excess of uh, 1,000 individuals working full-time, so a significant employer. Um, development charges are, you know, zero is better than what they currently sit at, but it's you know, not, not, not realistic in a, in a city like a, with a million people like Ottawa. Development charges are, I would say, competitive if you compare them to the, the GTA, uh, but they are, you know, they're creeping up. They're, uh, get, they're getting everywhere, I think, $10.40 a square foot or something like that right now for industrial. So it's, you know, it's a pretty penny on large-scale buildings of 2.8 million square feet. Do the math. It's a, it is a, it's a big check to write. Um, but it's competitive still. We're, we're approaching the point where it's, it's no longer competitive, but it's scratching that surface, still competitive. Um, the City of Ottawa specifically in terms of incentives, uh, not a lot has been offered right now to developers uh, for, um, for these type of facilities. Um, the city does have certain programs, uh, development charge deferral programs that uh, could, under certain circumstances, be beneficial. Um, the city 100% has a wonderful fast track program, a CIT program, which is a capital intensive track, I think is the acronym, but um, it's a fast track program for projects that will generate economic development, employment, and it'll allow those projects to follow, uh, follow the same number of planning steps, just in an accelerated fashion. So a four to six month uh, site plan approval process uh, versus a you know six to eight or eight to twelve month process. So you know, the city has um, you know somewhat aided uh, and accelerated those type of projects uh, historically with the, the two big projects uh, Broccolini has done in Ottawa. Uh, we did receive um, you know that that white glove service, and um, I think Mayor Watson said uh, you know why why put up the red tape when we can roll up the red carpet? And you know, very much for those projects, that's that's how we felt as developers. Uh, we don't see that in all municipalities. 
some municipalities, regardless of scale, regardless of economic development incentive, um, it's just another project, just another big box. And if uh, they don't accommodate us, someone will be along tomorrow with another project. So they stack up pretty well right now. Well, that's that's pretty exciting uh, to hear, and I'm glad to glad to hear from the de- development perspective that it uh, it's it's been working uh, to your favor in in getting uh, getting these uh, construction projects under underway and built in a really quick uh, uh, shortened timeline. So, uh, before the podcast, we we wanted to add a bit of stats into the mix, uh, mostly because my background is not uh, heavy on industrial, so we, we just want to understand the context of of where the market is today versus where it's historically been. So just in, in context of, of how that's impacting the market itself, obviously we've seen a pretty significant increase in the overall square footage uh, that has been built in the industrial market. We started uh, pulling some stats from CBRE. There's currently about 32.5 million square feet of industrial space in the Ottawa market. Uh, the, the last five years has averaged about 540,000 square feet per year, which is is very significant based on uh, in comparison to the previous uh, 15 years, uh, you know, going from 2001 to 2016, where there was only 233,000 square feet per year built. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the scale of the buildings that are being built. Obviously, you know, seeing an increase of 2.7 uh, million square feet in the last five years uh, that's been completed uh, is is. Um, maybe might look out of context when you're building buildings that are 1 to 2.8 million square feet at a time. So we, we've seen that growth in the market and total inventory creep up and I, I expect if we continue to see that interest from logistics types companies that that inventory of overall industrial space in Ottawa is going to continue to increase which obviously needs land to go on when you're you're building on sites that are uh, I'm not sure how, how large the site is that you're currently building on but it's not you know it's not a two acre site. <laughs> Um, so maybe you can shed some, some light on, on some of the constraints that you see with, with land use uh, maybe in Ottawa to accommodate that growth uh, in the industrial space. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great question and, and you know, some of these RFPs that we respond to, uh, you know, we're able to check every single box in terms of experience and, and in terms of interest, in terms of you know, the capital placement, uh, but we don't have the land. And um, in Ottawa, there's a definitely land shortage. Uh, we do not have shovel-ready, zoned, serviced sites to accommodate these larger-scale uh, developments. Um, when we canvassed the market uh, two years ago looking for a 60-acre site to accommodate a, a 2.8 million square foot uh, light industrial manufacturing facility, um, we came up with one site. Uh, we, there was only one site available. There's a couple other developers that are currently advancing um, entitlement on, on other large-scale properties. So I think the inventory will increase for sure in the next year uh, in Ottawa. So there will be some viable sites within the City of Ottawa boundaries that will be serviced, uh, zoned, and ready for these opportunities. But right now, uh, few and far between, and a great example is our um, recently an RFP for a company called Ford looking to build a, a 700,000 square foot distribution center in, uh, in the Ottawa area and unfortunately there was uh, no land available that met their time requirements and uh, they, they went to Castleman. And I think that's a really interesting point because when you, when you look back historically at industrial uh, use, 
you see a lot of the outskirts of, of major cities having large uh, manufacturing facilities. Like when I was growing up in, in Arbor, Boeing was a, a, a prominent employer in that market. And it's very different today when you look at the reasons why people need to select a site specifically for distribution and, and logistics. It's it's about proximity to people. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't put an Amazon facility uh, in, you know, 40 minutes outside of a, um, a metropolitan area because it just doesn't doesn't work from a practical perspective. So uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how, as a city, we can respond to that change. I think a lot of it has to do with redefining what industrial is uh, to add clarity around zoning, but also certainty for residents and, and understanding what provided for heavy industrial use. But that's very different than you know, a smelting facility is very different than a logistics facility. And I think it's really important that we, we have clear definitions there and, and plan for this growth because it's not gonna, not gonna revert back the other way. Shipping, this type of, of uses is, is here to stay and it's only gonna get, I think, more competitive over the next uh, few decades. Out of interest, um, for comparison, back to your previous point about dowries, or should I say development charges, what are the comparable development charges out in Castleman versus here, what would it have cost a company like Ford to develop that land so quickly? Which yeah. seems to be, speed to market seems to be uh, very, the issue, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I don't have uh, perhaps uh, uh, relevant experience with Castleman. Uh, however, Cornwall, uh, another uh, smaller smaller municipality near Ottawa is uh, you know is very much a competitive uh, competitive market from an e-commerce perspective, logistics perspective, to a city like Ottawa. Development charges historically have been zero dollars in Cornwall. Um, recently, they've gone up to I think a dollar and fifty cents a square foot. But when you're you know on a million square foot building, when you're talking about a ten dollar per square foot delta, it's material. Ten million dollars on the bottom line is material. And uh, Castleman obviously had a leg up uh, in, in that sense in terms of being able to offer uh, a more cost-effective uh, overall bottom line solution to, to a group that perhaps was focused on the bottom line more than uh, proximity to an urban population or a labor pool basis. So James, that's, that's an interesting point about the incentives uh, for why a community would, would roll out the red carpet and, and not have development charges as an example because it's not, that's not the only way for them to extract value uh, from a new employer coming and setting up shop in their, in their neighborhood. Uh, you've got long-term property taxes, you've got uh, just uh, general economic activity from people working in the facility. And I guess the question that, that I have is, is when you look at a facility as, as large as, as um, the ones that are being built that are predominantly um, uh, technology-oriented and have a lot of uh, proprietary technology and robots that, that do a lot of the work, is how many, how many employees can work in these types of facilities? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. There's a bit uh, of a misnomer that um, facilities that implement robotics and other technologies uh, do so at the expense of, uh, of you know, real humans, real workers. And that's not the case at all, really. These technologies, at least currently today, are used to improve efficiencies and, and coupled with a, you know, a traditional labor force. Um, their outbound production is significantly increased. So, uh, for example, uh, the, the most recent large-scale fulfillment center delivered uh, in Ottawa and Barhaven, it'll see more than a thousand full-time employees, 
And um, you know, that's, that's a big labor count, even though the building is almost 3 million square feet and you know, stacked floor to ceiling on multiple floors with, uh, with product. And so uh, there's almost a symbiotic relationship between the, you know, the traditional worker and, and the technology where perhaps heavy lifting and the more mundane tasks are now being taken over by robots and uh, the human component is, is you know, still very uh, live and real. That's, that's a lot of people to add in a very short period of time. I don't know how long you had that building under construction, but if you think of, of you know, an economy adding 1,000 people within a one to two year period, uh, you start to think of some of the other challenges that present themselves, right? Where are these people going to live? How are they going to get to work? Where are they going to park? Where are they, you know, all of these things are, are really important uh, considerations when they're looking at it. Have you guys, knowing that you guys are multifaceted with residential, uh, industrial, light industrial, uh, and so on, have you seen any, any interest in employers or any concern for employers on where these people are going to pull from from a workforce perspective? Obviously, you know, industries uh, transcending real estate right now are, are having a hard time getting employees. You don't have to walk down the street too far to see five or six help wanted signs. And, and one of the big challenges uh, that I think are, many industries are facing is actually housing employees close by that is convenient. And so when you look at, at building in Castleman, what does uh, you know, a 700,000 square foot distribution facility do in terms of disruption to that, that residential market? And is there enough housing there for people uh, to live within a convenient drive? Because I don't think people are going to commute from Ottawa. Well, uh, maybe they will, but it seems kind of counterintuitive that you would live in an urban city and commute to a suburb or a you know, tertiary market to, for employment. Yeah, you know, very much the labor force, the labor pool um, component of uh, an, uh, analyzing sites in terms of viability ties specifically to the end user. And Castleman is a great example where that specific facility, um, it's, it's not a highly employed uh, facility. It, I think maybe 50 to 60 full-time employees. So it's not a large-scale distribution center, a fulfillment center. It very much is a warehouse for storing parts for, uh, for a local dealer network, so a low employee count. Um, conversely, a project like you have in Barhaven, uh, like, like we have in Barhaven, um, that would never fly in Castleman. Just to your exact point, a thousand people a day traveling 40, 50 minutes to access, uh, you know, access uh, their work environment. Um, you either have to pay those individuals, uh, you know, a significantly increased overmarket uh, uh, salary, uh, or you'd have to transport them. So logistically, it becomes very challenging, and and uh, that goes into the site considerations when evaluating options. Uh, for sure, it does. Well, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that trend uh, or if that is a trend that continues because I think you look at some of the extreme examples of where housing has been an issue in the workforce and the example I can think of is like Fort McMurray, right, where people live in, you know, in, in these little temporary communities while they're up there working but they don't, you know, most of the time they spend there, they're at, at work 18 hours a day or 12 hours a day uh, and so that's not you know, work-life balance isn't really front and center, but a lot of these employees are there hoping to have long-term stability with employment. And so finding a solution to kind of workforce housing, I think is something, especially layering on an affordability crisis uh, in our city is something that's gonna be really important for the city to stick handle when they're looking at these zoning improvements uh, to, to facilitate these types of uh, uses. Luckily, we just had an election and everything's gonna be a-okay. There we go. You heard it here first on the ULI podcast that everything is going to be A-OK.
Um, so James, I, I realize we're getting uh, close to the end of our time, so uh, I think we just kind of want to uh, wrap up um, and, and again, thank you for, for sharing your insights. Uh, if you know people want to learn more about Broccolini, uh, the website is broccolini.com. There it is. Yeah, there we go. There it is. Uh, that's where you'll find out how they make it happen. Um, and uh, and so we, we really appreciate you taking the time. Obviously, you've been involved with uh, ULI in the past, and uh, and we, we really appreciate uh, having you on the podcast today. Yeah, and I just want to say, uh, Kevin, you know, for an office leasing broker and a multi-res developer, I'd say we did pretty good at the uh, industrial market overview with James Beach, VP of Real Estate at Broccolini. With that, we're going to wrap up episode two of the ULI Ottawa podcast. You can find us online at uliottawa.ca. You can also find our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Just Google ULI Ottawa podcast. And if you didn't catch the first episode, we covered the Ottawa office market with Sean Hamilton from Candorel. Uh, take a listen to that. and. And let us know what, uh, what you'd like to see on the future episodes of the ULI Ottawa podcast. Follow ULI Ottawa on LinkedIn and Instagram. Or visit us online at www.uliottawa.ca.